Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word and look not just for understanding of what it says to us, God, but looking for communion with you, Lord, you are speaking to us. You are communing with us in your word. You desire to draw us near. Lord, as we read a story of people being scattered, God, we long to be drawn into your presence and not away from your presence. God, I pray for those who are here who maybe have come to church for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, maybe have you know, resisted coming to church for feeling like you have kept them away, you have scattered them away from your presence. I pray that you today, God, would meet them in this place, meet us in this place, and draw us near to yourself. Give us confidence that we can be in your presence and experience your blessing. And so teach us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, throughout church history, the general understanding of the sin of Babel is pride. Most scholars, when they will look at what's actually taking place in Babel, they will see what's happening here as an evidence of human pride. They are building a city and they're building a tower to their own glory, to make a name for themselves. They want to be renowned. They want to be known. They want their glory to fill the earth. They want to be seen. They want to make a name for themselves. And while I don't think it's wrong to say that the sin of Babel is pride, I do think that it is an oversimplification. I don't think we understand the nuance of pride. I don't think we often think of it in the same way. One person says it and they mean one thing. One person says it uh, over there and they mean another thing. And I think the sin of Babel is more than just pride. But first I want to give a little context. Our first clue to understanding what's going on in Genesis 11 is actually found in Genesis 10. Genesis 10, 8 through 10, we read this last week. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And so these people have all gathered in the plains of Shinar. They've built a city. We know that the city is called Babel, and we know that Babel is founded by Nimrod. Okay? The first thing I want us to know is that this word Babel is the Hebrew word Babel. And if you know your Old Testament, you might be shocked to learn that the word Babel occurs in your Old Testament 233 times. 233 times the word Babel is used in the Old Testament. And 231 times it is translated something completely different. Only in Genesis 10 and 11 is Babel translated Babel in our English Bibles. The other 231 times it is translated Babylon. Babel is Babylon. Why our translators refuse to translate Babel in Genesis 10 and 11 as Babylon, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I didn't have time to research it. But I do know that Babel is Babylon. And so this is the origin story of one of the most significant nations in world history and biblical history. Babylon is one of the greatest enemies of God's people in the scriptures. They are the ones that came against the kingdom of Judah and sent them into exile. Babylon is also the nation referred to in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, which is Babylon becomes this code word for any human empire that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. And so this story is the story of the Tower of Babylon, the pride of Babylon, the sin of Babylon. And so throughout our time together, I may say Babel, I may say Babylon, it's synonymous. It's the same thing. But we also get a glimpse of the sin of Babel by understanding its founder, Nimrod, which is a fun name. When I was a kid, a Nimrod was like a person that wasn't too smart, but not in the Bible. Nimrod is a pretty impressive figure in the Bible. He is a warrior. He is a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he's known for his prowess in battle and in his leadership in building cities. He builds many cities. Babel is just the start of his kingdom. He would then go on and build Nineveh, another great city in the Old Testament storyline, the city that Jonah was sent to, these enemies of God. He is building these rival kingdoms that we know of in scripture. And his name means we will revolt. Nimrod means rebel, or we will rebel, we will revolt. And so here's this man who is a mighty hunter, but let's just think back to the last 10 chapters that we've read. Is violence of any kind something that God enjoys? Whether against humans or animals? No. Violence is the thing that grieves God's heart the most throughout 
Genesis 1 through 11. Violence is continually grieving God. It's, 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 it's the result of the fall. Cain kills Abel. Lamech is celebrating in his violence. All these things that we've talked about. And then the sons of God and violence is filling the earth and God brings the flood and all. It's violence. And so Nimrod, there's this like temptation. Like, oh, he's a mighty man. He is dealing in death. He is a, he is a, a, a violent person. And his name means we will revolt. Babel is the beginning of Nimrod's rebellious kingdom. And so the story of Babel is about a community rebelling against God. See, without this kind of contextual understanding, sometimes we can read the story of the Tower of Babel and be like, oh, they're building a city, they're building a tower, and God's really mad about it. So I guess cities are bad. Like God doesn't want people building cities and everyone in Carpinteria said, amen. But in the ancient world, see, we think of cities as being a place of danger and sin and, you know, and and fear and evil and all of these things. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. Cities were a place of safety. See, we flee from cities because we want safety. But in the ancient world, people fled to cities because they wanted safety because there is a strength in number. There is safety in number. It's the wild animals outside the wall of the city and the, the rogues outside of the walls of the city were trying to get away from. So they would flee to the city to have protection. Okay, and so the city is not what is wrong. It is the rebellion in the hearts of the people that caused them to build the city. See, the text says that all humanity gathered in one place to build themselves a city and a tower to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be dispersed across the face of the whole earth. God had commanded humanity. He commanded Adam and Eve, and then he commanded Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity had taken a liking to the fruitfulness and multiplication, but not so much the filling of the earth. They don't want to fill the earth. They don't want to be spread too thin. They want to be gathered, again, because there's safety in number. There is safety in cities. And if they are spread too thin, then they are vulnerable as a people. And so they don't like God's command. They are resisting God's command. Again, they're a community rebelling against God, specifically rebelling against God's command to fill the earth. And so they say, we don't like that. We're going to gather together. We're going to build this city. It's the first sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 all over again. Remember how Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. We, we had, I, there was a sermon from months ago. We talked about the tactics of temptation. And the enemy uses these tactics. Question God's word question God's character, and present an alternative narrative. And so what the people in Babel are doing is they are questioning God's word. They're questioning God's command. They've gone actually beyond questioning God's command. They're full on rebelling against God's command. You said, fill the earth. We're going to build a city and stay right here. You see that? It's founded. The foundation of this city is founded in Rebellion. Again, Nimrod, we will revolt. They are revolting 
against God and against his command. It's the first sin all over again. They do not trust that God's command is good. God is commanding them to fill the earth. They do not trust that God's command is good. And so they take matters into their own hands. And so rebellion against God begins with the distrust that God's commands are good. We don't believe it. We know what he says. We read it in our Bibles. We don't believe it. We don't believe that it's good. We believe that God's got, God's old fashioned. God's got, you know, some ulterior motives. God is just trying to squash our fun. God just is trying to get in the way. We don't believe that his commands are actually good. It's the beginning of rebellion. Think about a parent warning a small child not to touch that hot thing on the stove. Without any experience, without any prior experience that that child has of actually touching something hot and being burned, they don't necessarily know why that's a command, why they're being told not to touch the stove. And then they reach out their hand, they touch it, and they know right away. Mom and dad's instruction, mom and dad's rules are for my good. They said, don't touch it. I touched it. I got burned. Immediate understanding that mom and dad are trying to protect me. Mom and dad know the way life works best. Mom and dad's rules are good. But imagine now that that hot thing on the stove is a plate full of cookies. Don't touch the cookies. Okay, it's not hot. They know they can reach out and touch it and not be burned. So they do. They reach out and touch it. Nothing happens. Pick the cookie up. Still, nothing happens. Why am I not supposed to touch this cookie? It's, it's warm. It smells amazing. There's no nuts in it because nuts in desserts are gross. You get it. I love nuts. Just keep them out of the cookies and brownies and stuff. Okay, they don't belong there. Everything about the plate of cookies is screaming, this is good. Mom doesn't know what she's talking about. I will bless you. You need me. And the kid eats the cookie. Nothing happens. It's not like the stove. Nothing happens. How can this be wrong if it tastes so good? Polishes off the plate of cookies. Okay, there's, there's not the immediate sensation of the, the burn of disobedience. How can it be wrong if it's so good? What are the commands in Scripture that you have a hard time believing are true? What are, the, what are the commands in Scripture that I have a hard time believing are true? And they are there. Listen to me. If you've ever, if you've never read your Bible and come across something that in your heart you'd be like, I don't know about that. I don't think you're reading your Bibles or actually giving it the authority to speak these things over your life because everything in our hearts reacts against 
God's commands in Scripture. Scripture says the natural person does not desire the things of God. And when God communicates his desires for us in his law, in his commands, in the things in Scripture that he tells us to do and the things that he tells us not to do, when those hit our hearts, there's, it's, like, it's like oil and water. We resist it. We don't like it. There's times all the time when I'm reading it and I can affirm intellectually, I believe that's true, but my heart goes, no, no, I don't need to do that. That's for other people. I don't need to follow that one. What are the commands in scripture that you have a difficult time believing are good? And what settles the issue? What settles the issue when you're face-to-face with, I don't know, is this command for me or is it not for me? Is it good or is it bad? Is it something that I should obey or something that I should just ignore? What settles the issue? Who has the authority to determine whether or not that command that God has given is actually good? If you choose to reject the command as good, then you are placing yourself in authority over the word of God. Or if you trust that the person who has communicated his word, the one who has given you his word and given you his law is good, then we have to believe that his commands for us are for his good, that God knows the way life works best, better than you and I do, regardless of how it makes us feel. God has authority in his word to communicate the good that he desires for us by inviting us to blessing and commanding us to abstain from evil. God alone knows what is good and what is evil, and we trust God to provide the good and keep us from what is not. This is the sin in the garden. This is what they rejected in the garden. They wanted to know good and evil for themselves. The people in Babylon, they want to decide between good and evil for themselves. They didn't believe that God's commands were good. And so just like the Garden of Eden, they want the right to choose for themselves. It's like that kid that polishes off a plate of cookies. Babel experiences the safety of coming together and refusing to disperse over the earth. They like what that provides for them and they continue to justify it without experiencing immediate consequences. And they decide that it must not be that bad after all to resist the command of God and gather together in one place. And so what began as distrust in God's commands becomes a belief that they actually know better than God. They know what's good for them. They know what they need. They know how life works best. They know how to flourish. We flourish By gathering, not by scattering, not by filling the earth, we flourish by providing safety and security for one another. You see, it's not enough to say that the sin of Babel is pride. The sin of Babel is the rejection of God's authority to define good and evil, and therefore evidence that we have already placed ourselves in authority over God. When we rebel against God's command, when we decide that God's commands are not good, that we don't have to live by them, 
and we don't experience the consequences. We justify our sin. We justify our rebellion. We believe that we have actually made a choice that is greater than the choice that God has given us. We actually place ourselves in authority over his word and over God, but it gets worse. The sin of Babel gets worse because we haven't even talked about the tower yet. This is all about their desire so far to build the city. We haven't even gotten to the tower. See, Babel is a community rebelling against God while expecting a blessing from God. Babel is a community rebelling against God while expecting a blessing from God. Let me explain what I mean by that. This tower that they build, most scholars agree, is an ancient Mesopotamian ziggurat, right? A ziggurat is like a pyramid, but it doesn't have smooth sides. It has stared sides. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tower that looks like something should be able to climb up or down on. And at the very top of a Mesopotamian ziggurat is a room. The pinnacle of the tower is a room. And in that room, there is a bed and a table. So many people have the temptation of reading this text, and maybe you've heard it said, and one of my favorite you know, children's Bibles, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think gets this wrong. They will read this and they will say, see, the humans are trying to ascend to heaven because they built a tower with its top in the heavens, and they are trying to climb a tower so that they can get to heaven without God. I don't think that's right because that's not what a ziggurat was for. A ziggurat was not for humans to climb up on. A ziggurat was built for God to climb down on. And so they put a room at the top with a bed and a table, maybe some other stuff, because they wanted to provide the God a place on their long journey from the heavens where they could rest and be refreshed. Isn't that sweet? my God needs me to give him a place to rest and be refreshed. And so we're going to build this tower in order to entice God when he comes to earth, to come to earth here so that we will be blessed by his presence. See, this wasn't for them to climb up on. It was for God to climb down on. And so the people believed that even in their rebellion, even in their sin, even in their disregard for God's command, they could still get God to bless them, that God actually should bless them. And we can manipulate God by building this tower so that he will have to come down here and bless the people. See, the, the depth of human depravity Okay, is not just seen in our willingness to break God's law. It's not just seen in our willingness to rebel against God or reject God completely and choose a life completely apart from God. The depth of human depravity is not just seen in our willingness to sin, but it's seen in the fact that people actually believe that in our sin and rebellion, we can earn God's blessing. The sinfulness of the human heart is, God, I don't have to do what you say, and you're going to celebrate me anyway. 
That is what's happening in Babel. This is the epitome of human depravity, believing that God will actually bless us in our sin. Whatever your brand of sin is, whatever your temptation is, whatever area of your life is in rebellion against God, if you justify it and say, this isn't wrong, or this isn't wrong for me, might be wrong for other people, but it's not wrong for me, and you don't see the folly and the danger in that, then you will begin to believe that God is actually willing to celebrate it with you. To celebrate you in your rebellion. And it's like having an affair and thinking your spouse is going to be happy for you and make a little place for the other person in the home. It's foolish. God does not celebrate your sin. God does not bless our mess. He doesn't. This goes for those in the world who are living however they please and expect God to approve of their sin. And it goes for those in the church who live however they please and believe that God will bless you for your religious observance. This is not about them. It's not just about us. This is about humans. This is the way we live. There's an incredible irony in the story of Babel. They build this tower. They they rebel against God. They gather together in, in a reaction against God's command. They build this tower as an attempt to bring God down as if God needed a tower to come down. And do you notice it works? They build this tower. They want God to come from heaven and come down to bless the people. And God comes down. God comes down to see the city and the tower. And they completely miss it. There's no interaction between God and the people. There's no uh, people giving a defense for their sin. There's, God doesn't rebuke them. He says to himself, Let us confuse. This is only the beginning of what they will do. If they are allowed to collaborate on this kind of rebellion, there is no limit to what they will be able to do. We need to confuse their languages. They will, you know, leave off building the city. God never talks to them. He never interacts with them. They're so focused on the tower They're so focused on their own glory. God actually comes down and they miss it. They completely miss out. It's like, it's like a, he comes down behind the scenes and they're just like looking this way and they just, they they miss it. And then the very thing that they're trying to prevent comes upon them. They're scattered over the face of the earth. God confuses their language, which forces them to leave off building the city and they scatter over the face of the earth. The people were so focused on their own passions and their own glory that they missed the source of true blessing. 
all of their work, all of their lives, all of our work, all of our lives, all of our reputations, the name that we are trying to build for ourselves amounts to nothing if we don't have God's presence. Everything that they had accomplished would amount to nothing because they miss out on God's presence and are scattered over the face of the earth. And so whether you are here and you call yourself a Christian or not, we all are looking for good things in the world. We're all looking for a good reputation. We all want to be uh, uh, well thought of by those in our lives that are important to us. But we need to be aware of how closely we come when we're so focused on our reputation, when we're so focused on our own glory, when we're so focused on building our own kingdom, when we're so focused on the things that we can do for ourselves. God, I have built my life and I want you to come be a part of it rather than the fact that God has built this whole world and invited you to be a part of it, they build their city and they say, God, you can come here if you want and bless me. We build our kingdoms, we build our worlds, we build our names, our reputations. And we'd be like, you know what I think would be good to add to this? A little Jesus. Jesus, you can come into my life and bless me. I like that part of Jesus. And we need to be aware that we are so unaware of the rebellion in our own hearts. These same seeds of sin that existed in Babylon, they exist in our own hearts. We're all tempted to build our lives on something other than God's character. Something other than God's commands. We're all tempted to build our lives on something different than God. There is a tower built up in every human heart. It may not be an attempt to coerce God into blessing our sin, but it is the thing that we point to as justification for why God should bless us despite our sin. Maybe it's your knowledge of the Bible. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know so much about you. I know your word. It's hidden in my heart. I'm not doing it, but I know about it. Bless me. Or it's religious observance. It's, it's God, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm here. I'm here at church. I'm doing the right things. You told me that I should go to church. I'm at church. I tell people that I believe in you. Bless me. Maybe it's success in life. I know I'm a sinner, but look how good I have it. God must not be mad at me for my sin. This must be okay for me. God bless me. We have these towers in our hearts that we point to as reasons that God should bless us and take no account of the reasons we don't deserve the blessing. Jesus warned us that even self-proclaiming Christians would point to their own works as reasons for approval. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Tower, tower, tower. Tower. 
God, look at this. This is the reason you should accept me. This is why you should accept me. This over here, God, look, I know my sin is there, but look at this. This is why you should accept me. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Tower of Babel is a warning, not just to those outside of the church, rejecting God and living in debauchery. It is a warning for the self-righteous as well. Maybe you are not living in reckless rebellion. Maybe your way of earning God's blessing is through righteousness. You're not asking God to bless your sin, but you're also not acknowledging that it's there. That sin is there. That it displeases God, that it grieves the heart of God, the violence, the whatever, whatever it is. Not recognizing that it's there. And you're asking, you're not asking God to bless your sin, but you're still creating these monuments that prove to yourself and to others and trying to prove to God that you deserve his blessings. Self-righteousness is no different than what's taking place in Babel. You, you believe that you actually can do something to deserve God's blessing. You can do something to, to, to deserve God's approval. And listen, this is a major reason why many people today are angry with God. Many people today are angry with God. Because when they look at their lives, they're counting all of the things that they've done right. And then they experience difficulty. They experience hardship, not necessarily as a punishment for their sin, but just for living in a world of sin. They experience things that they do not desire. They do not delight in. And they go, God, I've done everything for you. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other thing. I don't deserve this. I deserve something better. I deserve your blessing. Look at my life. Look at my tower. Those of us living in self-righteousness are as near to the sin of Babylon as those living in rebellion. And the danger is that we can be so focused on what we do for God that we actually miss God's presence when he comes. We can actually come to church and justify ourselves and actually miss the fact that God's presence is here with us. See, Jesus is God come down to earth. The whole world was in rebellion. Okay, it's not just Babylon. It's not just, you know, Assyria or Persia or Greece or Rome or any of these other people who oppressed God's people. It was Israel as well. They believed that they, because of the law, had earned God's blessing, that they had earned God's approval so that when Jesus actually comes, they miss it. 
They completely missed it. And Jesus didn't come and pat the Pharisees on the backs and say, good job, guys, I'll take it from here. No, he said, whitewash tombs. Outside, you, you look beautiful, but inside, you're full of dead men's bones, brood of vipers, sons of the devil. These were the most righteous people that lived in Jesus' day. And he's calling them out. He says, rebels. You're rebels. You're rebelling against God through legal obedience, but never actually giving your heart to God. You're not like the Gentiles, chasing after all kinds of nonsense, but you're missing what God is doing. You're missing God's presence. And so Jesus steps into the depravity and sin, just like God comes down into Babel in their rebellion. Jesus steps into the depravity of sin and everybody misses it except for a small handful of people. And so Jesus has come into the kingdoms of the world and he comes into our kingdoms today. Today, Jesus steps into your world. Whether you've always identified as a Christian or never identified as a Christian, Jesus steps into your world today and he's not here because you're amazing. He's here because he loves you and wants to get rid of the little towers in your life that you build up for your own glory and knock them down and say, I'm better. Jesus is better. You want a blessing, but you don't turn to Jesus that he may give you the blessing. Jesus is God come down not in judgment, but to take the judgment away from you. See, here, the people miss it and they're scattered. But I promise you that today, if you receive Jesus as God come down, you will not be scattered but you will be gathered into the city of God, the kingdom of God. And it is your sin and the judgment that you deserve that is scattered from you as far as the East is from the West. It doesn't matter the beautiful things you do for God. It doesn't matter the wicked things you do in rebellion. Jesus steps into our world and offers you grace. Your sin is not blessed by God. It can be forgiven by God. Your self-righteousness is not just doing the best you can and then God doing the rest of it. No, your self-righteousness is evil that needs forgiveness. And regardless of who you are, if you accept that Jesus is God come down, not to bless your world, but to invite you into the world that he made for you, then while your sin remains dead on the cross and in the grave, you will be alive today together with Christ Jesus. Amen. All of us need God to break down the little towers that we are building that tell us that we don't need him. Because we do. We are desperate for what only Jesus can provide. 
We're desperate for what only Jesus can provide. He came in and the world missed it. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Whether rebellious hearts or self-righteous hearts, their works were evil and they missed it. They missed the light. They loved the darkness. John 1, 9, 13 says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh but the, or the will of man, but of God. What that says to me is no one is disqualified. No one is qualified by their own works. No one is disqualified by their own works. All of us can experience the blessing of God's presence if we acknowledge Christ's work. That he suffered the judgment for our sin on the cross and that he raised from the dead. We don't need a tower to ascend to God. We don't need a tower for God to descend to us. If we have Christ, then we are seated with him in the heavenly places, the scriptures say. And then all of life is a joyful, obedient act of worship because of what he's done for you. Look, Jesus doesn't bless the mess. He cleanses the mess. He cleans it up. He cleanses you and turns us from our rebellion to true worship and obedience. This is the blessing that humanity has been longing for our entire existence, the presence of God, Jesus Christ, God with us. He is here today. May we not miss it. Heavenly Father, would you please Tear down the idols in our heart. Tear down the towers in our hearts. Tear down all the little things that we would love to point to as justifications for why we deserve your blessing or why we have earned your presence. God, would you tear it all down and leave us at the foot of the cross, recognizing that it is only by your grace that we are saved, only by the justification that you give that we can stand before God, only because of your righteousness that we can be declared righteous. No one is exempt. No one is disqualified from coming to you. Jesus, I pray that today we would come to you in humility, that we would come to you in love, that we would come to you in, in, in full surrender and submission, giving up our right to declare which of your commands is good and which of your commands is not good and receiving that you are good, your word 
is good. Your desire for your people is good. Your spirit is good. Your grace is good. Your law is good. Your word is good. And worshiping you is the best thing we can ever do with our lives. And so Holy Spirit, would you come and convict of sin and righteousness and judgment? Would you come and turn our hearts to the Father? Would you come and make a way for the Lord and Savior Christ into our lives? Would we not resist? Would we not offer you our little towers, our piddly little Lego structures that we try to build for ourselves? And would we receive what you provide for us today? God, lay our hearts bare. Rip everything that is not of you from our clutches so that we can hold on to the good gift that you desire to give. Come, Lord Jesus, heal and save and transform and glorify yourself among us today as we give you praise. Amen.